Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 54, and last Sunday we were in Isaiah 53. For those of you that know your Bibles well, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, like really amazing details over 600 years before Christ comes to the earth about crucifixion, about the Roman way, um, things that happened before the Romans were even the Romans, before crucifixion was even a form of capital punishment. The message was titled, The Bible Points Here. So if you've ever asked, gee, I, I really want to be able to share my faith, and I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know the scripture enough, or where do I go, definitely get last Sunday's message. You can get it for free online, because it's, it's pretty powerful. Uh, this morning, the message is titled, A Blessed Future, and what was really cool was what God was going to do with the Israelites. This is a period of time where he's prophesying to them, they're in they're captives, unfortunately, in Babylon, and he was going to raise up the Persians under Cyrus to conquer Babylon and release them from this bondage and send them back to Jerusalem, which is an incredible blessing. They're stuck in this pagan land, and many of them are, are God-haters, or they, they practice this demonic form of worship, and the people were really just struggling. So God is showing them uh, about this incredible future that uh, awaits them. But the children of Israel... Just like even believers today, I think no matter what era you're in, we can be a little myopic. You know, we can look at the physical and, not, and, and miss the spiritual, miss what God is going to do in the, in the long term. You know, if you've got a pain in your knee, you just want God to heal your knee. When you have a boss who's on top of you, you just want God to get you a transfer or move that boss. But God wants to show us the big picture. He wants to show us that um, life and eternity is more than just the physical. So we're going to look at what they're doing, but we're also going to see applications for our own lives. Now, for those of you that are new to the scripture, prophecy's a little tough. It's a little tough to get used to because God sees everything at the same time, but we see things in linear time. So he's going to speak about things that are happening right in Israel's immediate future. He's going to speak about their uh, future in Jerusalem and the population explosion and all the blessings that are going to happen there. He's also going to be speaking about things that are in our future that haven't happened yet. Uh, so we're going we're to look at all of this, and I think we're going to be blessed by it. And we're going to look at it in four parts. So jumping in, Isaiah 54, it says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not travailed with child, for more are the children of the desolate, the barren, than the children of the married woman, says, says the Lord. Now, that doesn't make sense right off the top. So let's look at these metaphors. He says, enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your habitations. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, nor be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood any more. for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel." 
He is called the God of the whole earth. So one out of four is God's promise of Israel's restoration. Now, you might look at this and say, remember, the Bible's not politically correct. It's going to clash with American culture. The stuff that's coming out of academia, nobody can be offended about anything anymore. The Bible can offend us, but it shocks the conscience sometimes to get us to understand what he's trying to say. So as you look at these metaphors, okay, the first one is, verse 1 through 3, is that the Israelites captive in Babylon and Jerusalem lying in ruins, they were like a barren woman. Now, he's tapping into the mood of the people. And this is amazing because the prophet would speak these words. And the prophets, the Bible tells us, didn't even understand everything God asked them to stay. But as he's speaking these words, the people would be like, they, be, they knew what he meant. Because God was tapping into the mood of his people, just like us. We go through times of, of sadness and you know, exhaustion and, and different emotional things. And God can tap into our moods as, as well. And, and you can read the scripture and study the scripture and, and you're ministered to. It's just like a supernatural thing. And only God can do stuff like that. But in that day, well, today, if you, if you can't have kids, it can be depressing. It can be difficult, you know, if you're barren, so to speak. Uh, but then it was worse. And the reason it was worse is because you, you rec- actually needed the young blood. You needed the children to help you work in the fields, right? It wasn't the, the socioeconomic structure wasn't set up like what, what we're used to. You needed kids. You needed them to help you. You also needed them to take care of you when you got older. And some cultures still practice that, and I think it's amazing. Uh, so the, the barrenness, and they, they would be like, the, the prophet would say these things, the people like, yeah, yeah, definitely, he's tapping into what I'm feeling. Uh, verse 2, he says, enlarge the place of your tent. So when Israel was restored and returned, the Israelites, and returned back to Jerusalem, as we talked about this, there would be a population expo- explosion. So when he says that the barren or the desolate has more kids than the married woman, it doesn't make sense at first until you understand the metaphors that he's using. Because God always says, this seems impossible, but watch what I'm going to do. He's that type of God. Now, Bible scholars disagree on some of this in Isaiah 54, and that's fine. I'm open to both points of view. Um, some of this has to do with the return to Jerusalem and the, and the population explosion. Uh, some of it also, it, if you look at the context, doesn't fit anywhere uh, where Israel was, uh, Jerusalem was geographically, but it's speaking about our future, Israel's future, in this glorious millennial kingdom, and we'll talk about that. In Galatians 4.27, the Apostle Paul applies this multiplying, multiplying principle to spiritual blessings of the mixed church, right? So in the first century, for us to say, well, the mixed church, sure, there's Jewish people here, there's Gentile background. But back then, God was going to do this great work of bringing Jews and Gentiles together that the people really couldn't fathom because they were so different. But that's God's tent. He can bring diverse people together and they can harmonize in one thought and follow the Lord's will, which is a great blessing. Verses 4 through 5, the second metaphor was likening Israel to a widow. And again, a widow in our culture, it's sad. It's a sad thing to experience. But back then, it was even more difficult. Because the husband, the male, was often the breadwinner. So somebody who was a widow had great difficulty in, in surviving not only emotional grief, but the physical uh, obstacles. But God said that he would intervene and he would be 
Israel's husband. He says, I'm, I'm, I'll be your husband. And, and we can see a lot of these relationship metaphors between the father being the husband and, and Israel being the wife or the bride. Um, sometimes people come up to me and they look for some spiritual advice and I'm more than happy to give it to them. I use the scripture, of course. I had a situation where somebody came to me and uh, a young person and it was a difficulty in a relationship and a breakup. And uh, I said, so how are you doing? Some, some time passed and I had permission to use this. And she said, it's difficult. She said, but I'm learning what it's like for Jesus to be my husband. I had nothing to add to that. <laughs> There's times that people come up to me looking for something and I'm like, well, God already gave you that answer. That was powerful. So that, the conversation was, I was happy for her, but um, it really ended the conversation because I couldn't add anything to that. And it's, it's the, to these metaphors to understand God as someone who loves us that intimately. Now, notice I said two times, right, so far. I said, there was such and such a tragedy, but God. Right? It's a small phrase with but as a, a disassociative conjunction, but God. Okay, this happened. Okay, look in this direction. See what he's going to do. And I would just encourage you this morning to open up a space in your life for that phrase, but God. Verse 5, it says that he's the maker, he's the redeemer, he's the God of the whole earth. And what we see is that God made men and women and creation in a perfect state, but then he gave us free will. And when mankind, when men and women chose to sin and go down that road, um, there was all kinds of problems. So what did God do? He redeemed mankind through the Messiah and redemption for the whole earth. God loves everyone on the planet. So my question to you this morning is, what's your story? I don't have to call it out. Uh, what's your past? Will you give God a chance to breathe new life into your situation? I want to go back to verse 4. He speaks about the, the things that would, would come and that he would get rid of. And he would say, let's move past. In verse 4, he spoke about disgrace. He spoke about shame. He spoke about reproach. And on any given Sunday, somebody can walk into this place and be carrying a burden. They don't talk about it. They're ashamed. Maybe they're still involved in something. And every so often, you know, uh, and people leave churches for different reasons. Someone will leave. And in a lot of ways, and I've seen in a lot of times, that people have left because they just feel like they're unworthy. Somehow they think that a church is a place of perfect people. Well, if that's the case, then I'd have to be the first person to leave, okay? i just let you know that right off the bat. So at times, I might be in Stop and Shop, and um, I do a little counseling in aisle two because I meet somebody. Hey, where have you been? Oh, and they tell me the story, and, um, you know, it's aisle two. It's cool. It's been in aisle ten. Um, I actually enjoy shopping. I'm very methodical about shopping. I'm very domesticated, too. I do the dishes. And that has nothing to do with the message. But the point being, <laughs> but the point is that, you know, we have to give the Lord an opportunity to get us to change direction and always look at the spiritual. See, when I see people, when I go out into the world, when people invited me over to a, a social thing that they're not sure that I would go to, and I do go, I look at them as souls. I look at them as souls that need to be saved. 
You know, and it's really kind of funny. Every so often, I, I somebody I was introduced to somebody, and I start sharing the gospel, and he smiled, and he goes, uh, uh, he goes, I'm a brother in the Lord. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, we can just kind of talk, you know, brother in the Lord stuff. But you know, I look at the world, and I try to look at it like God looks at it. Is there's there's people who need to be saved. They don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior yet. And all the way back in the Old Testament, you see Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. It's really powerful. Verse 6, we continue. He says, For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. So two out of four is the third metaphor is a woman forsaken by her husband. Now, understand this, because people try to eisegete. They try to, again, take the culture craziness and put it into the Bible. Well, what is God saying? Does he have a problem with women? No, he doesn't. What he was trying to do, as a matter of fact, in not in certain situations, in all situations, when men would um, not treat their wives the way they should have, and a woman, unfortunately, was still attached to the man by marriage. Um, and the guy was playing games. God put it in his law that the man needed to let her go. And that legally, according to God's law, otherwise he was in sin, and he could be, you know, the religious system could, could deal with him, he would actually have to write a certificate of divorce and literally put it in her hand so she could be free. But understand, God was taking these situations which were the worst case situations and saying, I know you feel like this, right? So this is where we start. This is where, what we work with. Understand when things happen to us, they could be, it's not our fault. It could come from the outside or it could be self-inflicted. As far as the Israelites were concerned, I'm going to read a small portion of scripture in Second Chronicles 36, 14 through 16. Now I've been covering Second Kings and Second Chronicles. It's the historic portion of the Israelites. But if we look at 2 Chronicles 36, now remember, the word was written by prophets. It was written by uh, God-fearing people. It was written by those under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So in 2 Chronicles 36, 14, it says, this was unfortunately the cultural and the spiritual situation of God's people at the time. Moreover, all of the leaders and the priests and the people it was everywhere. It was endemic. It was not only the people, but it was the leadership, right? The priests, and, and God deals with the priests and the leaders. Actually, um, next time I teach on a Wednesday, we'll see that when the Babylonians came, they, they had executed a lot of the leaders. They led the people astray, and they were the worst sinners. And Babylon ends up judging this, this system and the leaders are the ones. The poor people and the oppressed people actually ended up getting the land and the farms and the vineyards. So it's kind of like poetic justice. Right? It says, They transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, the temple, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early, prophets, right, and sending them. Because he had compassion on his people and his dwelling place. He kept warning them, you can't do this. This is what's going to happen. Stop doing this. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Now remember, they were worshiping some like demonic 
uh, pornographic idols, and they were taking some of these sick practices of their pagan neighbors. So context is everything. Second Kings, Second Chronicles, it tells us what's going on. But God still forgave His people, right? God still is a merciful God. He still forgave His people. And He's saying through the prophets, I know how you feel and I know the burden you're carrying. At times they did it to themselves. But what does God say? And this is what people do, right? And God's not people, thank God. And maybe some have gone to a church where they've run into a situation where a leader says, ah, you're a jerk, you did this to yourself, it's your own fault. We're still supposed to show mercy. So even when God's people, it was self-inflicted, He still had mercy on them. He still wanted to forgive them. He still wanted them to repent or to change. And He still wanted to restore them and forget their sins and blot it out. And you see these practices in the temple and eventually through Jesus Christ, when we trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior, our sins have already been paid for at the cross. We're forgiven and God doesn't bring it up anymore. That's mercy, that's grace, that's love. And you can't get that anywhere in the world, folks. It's a different kind of love to experience. But if God isn't a God of justice or if God is a God of justice, He has to allow at times you know, wayward behavior to, and, 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 you know, the consequences of sin to play themselves out. He has, to ha- he has to let it happen, right? He gave us free will, but he's always waiting, as in the prodigal son, the father, always waiting for that prodigal son to return. I mean, he didn't go out to, to meet the son where he was in the pig, the pig pen with the mud and eating the pig food. The father let him do that thing until the kid came to himself and said, What am I doing with my life? And he goes back to his father and he apologizes. It's a great parable. It's a great uh, metaphor of how God always waits for his prodigals to come home. Now, what he also shows them is a few things. He shows them, remember, they're being myopic, like we're myopic sometimes. I'm just concerned about the physical right now. I'm just concerned about this current circumstance. We're just concerned about being in Babylon. We don't want to be here. So what does he do? He goes, don't worry about it. You're going to be freed. They get to go back to Jerusalem with a police escort, with supplies, with water, with um, supernatural grace that they actually make this long trek, a population explosion. So number one, he redeems them physically. But what does God do in the Old Testament? God always speaks about the Messiah. Every single book in the Old Testament, 39 books, speak about the Messiah. You can find it from Genesis all the way to Micah and Malachi to the last prophet. Okay? So what he's saying to his people is, I know that you can't appreciate this right now in your limited understanding, but I'm going to send you a situation and a Messiah, right? So that your sins can be forgiven, so that you're spiritually redeemed. And that's something we don't necessarily feel. That's why when we're born again, we still have the old nature of the flesh, but we want to please God. We want to move in His direction. You see what I'm saying? But we're unfortunately still tied to the flesh. However, what's the third thing that God is going to do? He's eventually going to redeem the physical creation and our physical bodies. So there will be a point in time where God remakes utopia again as He did in the garden. And there will be impossible for it to be ruined by sin again. And that's something that I look forward to. Because at 51, i got to tell you, elbow, the knee, you know what I'm saying? And I get, all right, so that's, I see, I went right to the physical, didn't I? I proved my point, right? But then when I do something stupid or sinful, I, I, gotta, I, I get upset with myself. And I'm like, 
I, I let the Lord down again. So I'm looking forward to that future time where we can't sin anymore. And we have the physical to go with it. So it's kind of neat how God does things in stages. Everything He does is extremely methodical. The brilliance of God is He shows us a problem. He shows us the, maybe the pit that we've dug for ourselves. And we're at the bottom of the pit looking up and saying, I, I, I can't get up there. He shows us the mess that we make, but then He shows us the solution. That's a loving God. For every problem, for every sin, there's a solution. He just got done explaining. Remember we were in Isaiah 53 last Sunday, the suffering Messiah? And again, looking for this conquering warrior, they were given this suffering Messiah. Substitutionary atonement. Died for the sins of the people. The people didn't understand what joy could come through Jesus Christ until they actually experienced Him in the first century. And, and folks, that's just like us. You know, His ways are higher than our ways. We, we think we know. We think we know what God should give us. We think we know how we should be you know, miraculously saved out of this situa- situation, and God does it differently. And sometimes the, the best of cr- Christians, sometimes we question God because we still have a very limited understanding. But I can tell you that in my 20-something years of being a Christian, looking back, God's never let me down. And I might have felt alone at times. I might have struggled and suffered. But when I look back, I I cannot say ever in all those years that God, He dropped me off somewhere like like a stray cat or something. You know what I'm saying? He was always there with me and there for me. I just didn't see it as I was going through it, but I see it now in hindsight. That's the beauty of hindsight, you know what I'm saying? So notwithstanding the suffering Messiah, what he was telling them is I'm going to, your, your physical situation is going to change too. God was saying, I got this, I got you. Continue on, verse 9. He says, for this is like the waters of Noah to me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth. So have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. So 9 through 10, the third part, is a promise to never cast off Israel. And in, in the flood of Noah, Isaiah is even referring back to the flood of Noah. It was an actual event. Um, God promised in Genesis 9, well, this type of judgment will never befall the earth and people again. Um, By the same token, he strikes a parallel and he says to the Israelites, though you may feel a certain way, though you might think that you're cast off because of your circumstances, um, I would never do that to you and I will never do that to you. So regardless how it looks and how it feels, don't trust your feelings. Again, I I like feelings. Feelings are cool. uh, But there's times that I have to say to myself, I, this is how I feel, but this isn't reality. You see what I'm saying? Very important. Again, sin has consequences. Even Hebrews 12 is the discipline chapter. A lot of people refer to Hebrews 12 in the New Testament as the discipline chapter. But what is it designed to do? It's designed to bring us to change. It's to bring us to repentance. You know, it's interesting because uh, I hear this a lot in, in the addictions community is you have to hit rock bottom. And when you hit rock bottom, you you know what happens when you hit rock bottom? You realize that all your ways aren't cutting it. All man's ways aren't cutting it. You're at the bottom. And you, you say, okay, the only one who can help me out of this is God. 
But I want to encourage you, if you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord, you don't actually have to hit rock bottom to follow the Lord. It's great that there's that safety net, but don't gamble with your salvation. I got to be honest with you, when I came to Christ, I wasn't at rock bottom. But I, I, there was an emptiness in me. And it was funny because my wife would sometimes, and I, I remember, I remember, I have a memory like an elephant. I'd be in the kitchen in our old house and she'd be like, you're kind of staring into space. What's wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, I don't feel right. There's something missing. There's something. And uh, it wasn't until I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior that I didn't feel that anymore. You see what I'm saying? My lack, my void spiritually was affecting my emotions. And that's the beautiful thing about coming to Christ because it helps get your thinking straight. You're not lost anymore. You're not meandering through life. You actually now have a purpose. And that's the blessing. So, check that out. Sadly, when some look at the Scripture, they can come to the wrong conclusions. And they can come to things that are not reality. And this is the grave danger about the cults. Now, I've read the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 several times. So I pretty much can't say I have everything memorized, but I can tell you every book, what it stands for, what the main point was, where the Messiah was in it. It's just what you do when you're a pastor. You study, study, study. But what the cults do is they'll take passages out of context. And they'll find things that don't exist. Remember when I told you about the initially when the metaphor about the uh, the barren woman being able to have much more children than the married lady, and I said doesn't make sense on the surface. So somebody will find that, take it out of context, and say, "Look, see, that, that's a simple one. The Bible's full of contradictions." Not understanding how he speaks metaphorically, not understanding how he was. You know, Jesus spoke this way too. He spoke in enigmas. He spoke in puzzles. And then when the people that really wanted to know the truths of God would take him aside and say, what were you talking about? And he goes, he, methodically, systematically, he goes through all the things he was speaking about and his followers, the disciples, like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So sometimes God uses different methods to pique our curiosity. Uh, and even in some of the, the parables, he said to his disciples, the ones that don't really want God, they're going to walk away. And he's like, I don't want to know what this riddle is. I didn't come here for riddles. I came here for a free meal, Jesus. But the ones who really wanted to know God would look at that and ask the question, what does that mean, Master? What's the symbolism behind that? And if you're really serious about God, you won't hear something and just walk away. You'll say, I want to know what that means. And that's important. That's important. So when we look at the, the Scripture, and you might say to me, and I always try to find the polemic view before it actually comes, God speaks about His mercy, His peace, His covenant, His blessings, but what about the persecution? Now you have to parse it. What are we talking about? Are we talking about the pain that they struggled with under the Babylonians? That was self-inflicted. God had nothing to do with that. That was their sin that brought them to that place. What about in Egypt? Well, in Egypt, that was a trial. And God actually removed them out of that situation. It was really unfair what that Pharaoh did to them. So it depends on what era we're speaking. And then you have to look at the source of trouble. Is it self-inflicted or is it outside? And folks, we go through the same thing, don't we? We go through some things that are self-inflicted and thank God, God is merciful. And then there's somebody who has it out against you. Do you ever get that? Like for no reason. They can't stand you. Like no matter what I do, this person is so mean to me. And that's not self-inflicted. That's a trial. 
And that's where we have to ask the Lord's uh, wisdom in that. How do I get through this? John 16.33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me, Jesus said, in me, in Christ, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Sort of like rock, paper, scissors. He trumps everything. However, while we're still in this era or this dispensation, this is, we're still under this fallen creation because of sin. We're going to go through trials, but God is always with us. But that's not going to last forever. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And his disciples must have been like, but wait a minute, you're not the conquering Messiah. How did you overcome anything? First of all, he gave every soul the ability to get into heaven, which is amazing, by paying for our sins at the cross. And Christ's plan and God's plan on the timetable in, in some near future, it could be 10 years from now, it could be 20, I have no idea. You know, only the cults set dates. Christ didn't set a date. When this uh, occurrence happens, God speaks about, I will remake the heavens, I will make, remake the earth, I will remake the uh, Jerusalem, it'll, it'll be New Jerusalem. All these wonderful things are coming. Wait till you see it. So you've got you to gotta trust God in that, uh, in that understanding. Verse 11, continuing on, he says, O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. And your children shall be taught by the Lord. Now that implies a direct teaching by the Lord. And the great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the spoiler to destroy No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So 11 through 17, four out of four is God's people go from affliction and tempest, storm, to solid foundation and blessing. And again, it wasn't because of God. The Israelites' relationship with God was stormy at times. Now, God is the, he could do anything. If he wanted to just say, you know what, I'm tired of, (laughs) like imagine God, like I'm tired of reading the newspaper, I'm tired of seeing the wars, I'm tired of seeing the, you know, people say, oh, why doesn't God, and God's asking us the question, why don't you? I gave you, men and women, stewardship over the earth. These problems are not God's fault, it's because of sin, okay? So at times, the relationship with God's people was stormy, but he but he kept promising them better things. They just had to let it play out. And eventually and eternally, he would give them a firm foundation as we speak about this, this city, right? 11 through 15, if you're looking at context, now this is where the, the, the Bible teachers kind of have this discussion. So if you look at 11 through 15, what you see is from the beginning of time until now, it just doesn't fit. 
It didn't fit at the time Isaiah was speaking. It doesn't fit today in 2018. So this has to be a future fulfillment. And again, Revelation 21 speaks about the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. And you see the stones in the walls of this new Jerusalem. You know, when you know the Bible, you read something in the Old Testament and go, I know, I know that's somewhere. That's in Revelation 21. So this is, again, a future occurrence that he's speaking about. But he's talking about them being taught, being protected, and being cared for. In verse 15, it disappears to be because when the Lord comes back, the second coming, this is going to be directly after this last battle. This globalist, who's actually in our future, by the way, this globalist who's going to come on the scene, we used to call him the Antichrist, but hey, let's, you know, let's talk about what, what's the culture doing. Right? I'm going to tell you something. For Christians, especially when you're voting, vet your candidates. Now, I respect the Christian who says... I can't stand either one of them. You know, one time I try to put my name in the ballot box, like electronically it says enter the name. I'd be like, what if they said, hey, Joe, you're the senator. Nobody voted. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, no. All they have to do is hear a few of my messages. Believe me, they'll drive me out. But uh, I, I get that. I respect that. But understand, Christians, what does the Bible say, right? For, that, for those candidates that have sworn allegiance to the global idea and it's already happening um europe the united states the more we move towards globalism or we vote for that in this country understand follow the un follow what the politicians are saying our amendments one by one are going to start to disappear and what's going to happen is we lose our sovereignty as a nation and christians are unwittingly voting for a system that's going to give rise to the antichrist a lot of christians don't read their bibles And if you're one of those Christians, you're going to start making decisions that are against God. Just saying. God's a forgiving God. doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. But at the end, when when we are in His presence and all understanding is opened up, all the books are opened, all the, the, you know, the who killed JFK, you know, all that stuff, right? We're going to know everything. That's what I believe. We're going to, God, all that understanding is going to be bestowed upon us, things we don't know now. And I certainly don't want to be in the position where I fought really hard for something and it turned out that that's not what God wanted. So, you know, you look at the Middle East, that's where everything's going to go down, Europe, and um, we're really not much in Bible prophecy. And that says a lot about where we're going as a culture. As a matter of fact, our culture is tearing itself apart. You know, are we red or are we blue? I covered this on Wednesday night. We should be Jesus first. And then worry about if we're red or we're blue. You know, my goal, again, is not to alienate people based on any political views I have. But my understanding and my goal is to bring people to the living God. Read the Bible. Understand what it says. All the answers are in there. So this globalist will come. It's, it's going to happen. He will, we're already seeing it in the banking system. Uh, we're already seeing it in the laws We're already seeing um, some of our sovereignty has been given away to the United Nations. Uh, There's some uh, outside agencies that have owned more and more parcels of land in the United States that's considered their ground. It's not United States anymore. Uh, So listen, these things are real. This isn't fantasy. This isn't a contrivance. Uh, So this person is going to come. He's going to unite these armies. And uh, he's he's an anti-Semite. He's going to go after uh, the, the Israelites. And we see that. 
Read, do, your, do your research. Look at anti-Semitism in Europe. France is really bad. Who would have ever thought France? They were part of the allies of freeing the, the Jews from the concentration camps. Do a little study. Do a little homework. Don't just watch the news that puts us in this plastic bubble of the United States. There's a lot of things going on overseas. Anti-Semitism has risen in the United States. The, the, the numbers might shock you. Okay? That's against God. God has never forsaken his people. And quite frankly, anyone who is a... And, and, I, and I know, I've met these people, and I ask them, why do you hate the Jews so much? And they just they get contorted, and they can't really you know, illustrate their point. But it just bothers them, right? And this person is going to tap into that, and he's going to surround... Uh, he's going to march into Israel. But the Lord's going to come back before anything uh, major really happens there. So God says in that particular war, and that, that is all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's like, well, these, this is going to happen again, but it isn't going to be by me. As a matter of fact, the Lord is going to save the Israelites. Six, it's, it's tough. If you're new to the Scripture, it's like, wow, you're throwing so many things at me. It's very intricate. Prophecy always tells the future. It's never been wrong. Uh, 16 and 17, you know, I, I looked at this um, I actually did a little research. There's actually, and of, of course, when you take a census, you can't get anything 100%. But out of the roughly 8 billion people on the planet, again, you can't tally every single person in some remote area. Only 15 million are Jewish. So that means that the Jewish people in the world are a minority. They're less than 1%. And God is saying, I will not let these weapons form against you prosper. Some have come and try to eradicate the Jews, and God's like, I'm never going to let that happen. So if you look at Egypt, didn't happen. They tried. Babylon, didn't happen. Haman, the Inquisitions, the Nazis, the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, the coming globalists. When you really look at it, they've been come against many times, all the way back thousands of years until today. And God's like, I'm not, I don't, even though you're a minority or a small minority, I'm not going to let it happen. So, and again, does it mean we agree with everything Israel does? No, because mostly secular people are running Israel right now. But Zechariah 12 says that when the Lord comes back, that nationally they will, they will actually see him and they will, they will accept him as their Messiah after some 2,000 years. It's finally going to happen. So again, we don't agree with everything they say because they make some ungodly decisions, but we support their right to exist. That's very, very important. Pastor Vinny's been talking about replacement theology, uh, which has been sweeping some denominations, even in the United States, where, and this is dangerous, where they're saying, well, God is done with the Israelites. You're not reading your word if you, if you think that. And he's, he's, because they turned their back on him, you know, the church has replaced Israel. We've taken her blessings. That's dangerous ground, and it doesn't even fit with the Scripture. But some mainstream denominations are buying this stuff. That's frightening. So when you talk about the stage being set, when you look at all the parameters, you can see the stage being set. And quite frankly, I just, there's actually a, some in the Reformed theology, I mean, they all go to seminary. It's like a, an intellectual part of it, not all of it. It's like an intellectual cult. And they believe this replacement theology. I'm like, how do you read the Bible and see this in here? It, it's, it's not possible. 
So a lot of information. Uh, verse 17, and this is cool because when I was uh, actually on patrol, I know this was uh, for the Israelites. It says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. This is good to pray for. Again, pray for your military. Pray for your police. Pray for them to make good judgment, right? To not make a fatal mistake that you know, can harm them or somebody else. But pray that no weapon formed against them shall prosper. And I went, listen, I was on patrol. I was a pastor for a while, and I'm being on patrol. And every day I went out there, I went into some scary situations. But I had a lot of Christians who were praying this, no weapon formed against you will prosper. Again, it was specifically for the Israelites, but I'll take it, kept me safe. And there's some, some very close calls that I'm like, you know, I know the Lord was looking over me. Um, definitely. <laughs> so it's good stuff. I'll leave you with this. <laughs> Jesus quotes, if you look at verse 13, He says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Jesus taught this in John 6. Jesus referred to this. And he was speaking, he was signaling, again, the coming relationship, the close relationship with God through Jesus Christ, okay, as the mediator. He was speaking about that relationship. He was speaking about the relationship where the Holy Spirit would seal all believers, um, being closer with God. And if I can read one more thing, and then we'll, we'll close for this morning. Uh, and I read this at funerals. This is a, f- a future dispensation. In Revelation 21, verses 3 through 4. Now remember, the Revelation has 22 chapters. This is almost at the end of the book. It's, it's for the most part chronological with some exceptions. He says, the New Jerusalem descends. God sees the holy city coming down from heaven. Uh, I'll start with verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. In other words, the dwelling of God, where God lives. Okay? Because of sin, we are kind of physically separated from God. There is a, a layer of separation. But what it means is that God will be with men and women. He will be, will be among him. He will dwell with them. He will live with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 4 is powerful. It says, God will wipe away. This is a personal ap- application. You know, we cry when we get upset, when our heart is broken, when we've, you know, somebody was supposed to be loyal and they stabbed us in the back, and we, we go through these emotional things. It says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's personal. Imagine God with his finger taking the tear and, and doing this. Right? And it gets better. There shall be no more death. Death is gone now. It's eradicated. Nor sorrow, nor crying, nor depression, nor addictions, nor struggling, nor all these things. And there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, this isn't fairy tale stuff. This is God saying, in my new kingdom, I'm going to give the whole world a chance to be saved. And for those that, that choose to follow me, those prodigals that have come home, my people, this is what awaits them. Gives us a lot of promises. Now, don't get me wrong. I've heard people say that, you know, you want to come to God because it's fire insurance. Nobody wants to burn in hell. That's nice. But hopefully you want to come to God because you want to get to know God. It's like the best relationship you could ever have. You're never, ever alone. So keep that in mind. A blessed future for them? Well, we know because... 
our, our hindsight was their future. So we know. We look at the history books and we say, oh yeah, it all happened as God said it would. But what about for us? What about for us? Jesus said, I've overcome the world. We haven't experienced it yet, but he already has in the spiritual. Again, he's, he's pulled back the curtain of the atomic structure and, and the world according to molecules and compounds. And he says, this is the real world. This world has been here before any of you were made, before the world was made, and this will be here after I eradicate all the evil and turn this place into a utopia again. I rarely watch TV, but if I'm flipping through the channels and I end up on the animal kingdom, my wife is like, change the channel. That gazelle is going to get eaten. So <laughs> she's like, I can't watch this. <laughs> but it's really cool because, you know, we covered Isaiah was at 11 about the lion laying down with the lamb and even the animal kingdom, with a, a, they're, they're at peace with each other. They start eating grass again and, and herbs and stuff and vegetation instead of eating each other. Um, where's Turkey Vin Vin? Nobody will be eating Turkey Vin Vin anymore. So... Uh, <laughs> But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that, I hate to break this to you, the world is going to get worse and worse. But Christ has overcome the world. You know, he's, we hide him in our heart. We're sealed with the part of God. And that's what we have to get used to. A lot of times we pray about our circumstances to disappear instead of praying about how we can be taken through those circumstances with him with us. We need to look past the physical, past the circumstances, past the plastic in our society and see the picture, the big picture as the expression goes, that things are not necessarily falling apart but falling into place according to Bible prophecy. So join me in rejoicing in tapping into his peace, and looking forward to the future because it is a blessed future, truly. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.